I didn't mention in the beginning of the service, but there are several families here today that don't ordinarily come to Desert Springs, but are here because they're glad that I'm leaving Tucson. <laughs> and they just wanted to make sure that it's true. You know, it's like signing the deal at the end of the, the day. No, thank you for coming. And uh, let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. I'm just going to be reading one verse from Acts 15. And verse 9, this is the Word of God. And He, the Holy Spirit, made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is God's Word. Many years ago, I heard the saying, which I believe is true, all of an Englishman's preferences are always a matter of principle. No, two lumps of sugar, please. That's the way it should be. And isn't that a, a truth? That for many of us, our, our preferences are often elevated to that level of principle. It's a principle for me, for example, that the remote control be returned to the same exact spot. I wouldn't say it's the 11th commandment in our house, but it's close. And it's always broken, by the way. This is another way of saying that what's true for me must be true for you. I think religious people are very susceptible to this problem. It's sort of like the joke about two men who met each other on what they thought was a deserted island, and in their joy of discovering another human being in their existence, they found out that they had something in common. They both believed in God. And the conversation ensued, went like this. What denomination are you a part of? The first man asked. Presbyterian, the other answered. Really? Me too. What kind of Presbyterian? Evangelical. Really? Me too. Are you amillennial evangelical Presbyterian or postmillennial evangelical <laughs> Presbyterian? He said, postmillennial. Really? Me too. Are you a superlapsarian covenanting Presbyterian? The man paused and said, no, I'm infralapsarian. Die, heretic! <laughs> It's funny because it's a little too true. There's something about being in pursuit of truth, which Christians are in pursuit of truth, that opens us up to forgetting to see the forest from the individual trees. It's a kind of a priority error in my mind. First things get put in second place, and second place things get elevated into first place. And before you know it, the good becomes the enemy of the better and the best. Our text this morning is along these lines about discovering the kind of distinctions, the kind of priorities that God has. And the text that I just read says that the remarkable truth is that the only distinction, the only priority that God has is faith. So if you forget everything else I say this morning, and if statistics are true, most of you will, remember this 
that the only priority and the only distinction that God makes is between those who have faith in him and those who do not. Everything else is secondary. That's why I call the sermon No Distinction. Because in the text I just read, the leaders of the new sect called the Way or called Christianity were religiously and ethnically Jewish. These are, these are seminary trained or, or soon to be seminary trained rabbi type of people. They hadn't stopped going to the temple. They hadn't stopped offering sacrifices necessarily. They hadn't stopped observing the religious holy days of the Jewish calendar. And specific to our passage, they were punctilious. They were very strict about keeping the ceremonial rules of staying clean. Now, I don't mean like they showered every morning. I mean the, the idea of being ceremonial clean, of, of washing with water for religious purposes. And because of these religious practices, they were accustomed to making distinctions between clean people and unclean people. This included the kind of food they ate, the kind of clothes they wore, the people they touched, and even the way they went to the bathroom and engaged in marital intercourse. It covered every aspect of their lives. It was a conviction that was so deeply held that many of these early Jewish Christians were scandalized to discover that unclean people, also known as Gentiles, were being welcomed in to the new Christian faith. What? Unclean people receiving baptism? An example of this way of thinking can be found in the Gospels. If, if you'll listen, I'd like to read a couple of those passages. One is in Mark chapter 7. When the Pharisees, those are the, the religious conservatives of the day, gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessel and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then verse 9, he says, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then he explains it to his disciples in verse 14. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So Jesus is, is addressing this idea of ceremonial cleanliness and in, in addressing it, Mark goes on to say that in saying these things, he declares all foods clean. So huge sections of Leviticus, okay, 
of the Torah, huge portions of the Torah, by these words of Jesus and his practice in cleansing lepers and in welcoming different kinds of sinners. And, and even in the book of Acts earlier, there's a eunuch, someone who was castrated, was, was actually baptized and welcomed into the temple. And there, there are religious restrictions on that in the Old Testament. And so through these kinds of examples, we discover that the, the rules and the methods of cleanliness, of religious cleanliness, were set aside in, in a significant way by Jesus. In Matthew 23, he goes so far as to, to point to the religious conservatives, the pastors and teachers, and he says, Woe to you! He says, Woe to you! Almost like saying, There's no hope unless you change. He says, You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is like a grave full of dead men's bones. As I mentioned in the beginning, God's only distinction is based on the one who has faith in him and the one who does not. I think this has huge implications for religious people today, for people who have a view that says, you know, God is like the Santa Claus. He has a naughty list and a nice list. And if we find ourselves on the naughty list, like all of us do, some of us more frequently than others, then we need to do something to clean ourselves up. We need to Wash our hands. It's like we've been on the naughty list all day, but then right before dinner we wash our hands and then we get moved to the nice list. And that's the nature of religion. It, it encourages us to do something to get clean before God. There's an impulse in us that says we have to do, we're not fit in and of ourselves. And so there's this impulse is to, to change ourselves or to wear certain things or to do certain things or to go to certain places. Think of it as like a pilgrimage. And Christians have pilgrimages too. We go to certain church buildings every Sunday. It's like a weekly pilgrimage. I think this also has implications for people who don't have faith in God because they've seen these sorts of unacceptable distinctions being made by religious people and they say, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. Because they see that, that Christians are making distinctions on secondary matters. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see through that sort of thing. So I'm going to discuss making distinctions this morning in three parts. First, I'm going to look at some biblical context. And then second, I'm going to look at the, the, the simple gospel distinction of faith, which I've mentioned. And then finally, I'm going to end with some applications. I'm calling that, what is our mission? What kind of dis how is our distinction making calling us to mission? What should we do? If God makes only one distinction, then what does that mean for our mission as Christians, for this church? So, again, biblical context, first of all. Then the gospel simplicity, God's one distinction of faith. And then three, how that faith is at the heart of our mission. As I was thinking about the, the biblical context, it occurred to me that it's not just Jew, the, the Jewish religion that makes these sorts of ritual cleansing distinctions. It's also true in Islam and Hinduism and many other religions have practices of, of cleanliness and kind of religious rituals of making oneself pure before God. One of the most famous passages in the Bible along these lines that shows how our impulse is 
to cry out to God about our being unclean is in Isaiah. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet who came face to face with what we read as the Lord seated on his holy throne. And Isaiah, in seeing the Lord on his holy throne, this is what he says. He says, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah doesn't say, time out, God. I got to go wash my hands before we have this meeting. He says, effectively, even if I went and washed my hands, it's too late for me. Woe is me. There is no place I can go. There is nothing I can do. There is nothing I can wear that will fix this terrifying situation I'm in in the presence of a holy and just God. There's a Christian tradition that I really like that sees the proverbial fig leaves in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve's attempt to cover up their sin. It's their attempt to, you know, take a machete or whatever he had in the garden, and I don't know, and, and fig leaves, if you've seen some of the fig leaves in the tropics, they're very large, so he took maybe a couple of these and wrapped them around himself, and this is his attempt in a way, symbolically, in the first chapters of Genesis, there's a lot of symbolism, of covering his sin. And so God comes to Adam. In the narrative, God comes to Adam and, and to Eve and, and asks him, what has he done? And he says, well, I realized I was naked and I had to cover myself up. And that begins the, the story of of. God addressing the sin first of the man and then of the woman and then of the serpent. But the, the narrative ends in the garden. It ends with some remarkable words. It ends with God himself providing a covering of skin, Genesis 3 says. And so the Christian tradition that I spoke of understands that in this, in this other part of the clothing aspect of Genesis, we see not man covering himself, but God covering man. Man's clothing attempts, man's preparation attempts, man's religious attempts, a human being's efforts to get right before God were inadequate. And so God provides the covering. God provides the necessary raiment. So fig leaf has become a colloquial expression in English as anything a person attempts to do to cover up a mistake, but it doesn't work. I think one of the most disturbing things, and this leads me to this part of the biblical context of this idea, one of the most disturbing things to me in all of the Bible is the amount of blood. It's just, there are, there are literally swimming pools, oceans of blood flowing through the Bible. It just, it just never stops. And in fact... You may not have realized it, but in this, in this text in Genesis 3 that I've been talking about is the first example of blood. It's implied. It isn't stated expressly. But when God provides a covering of skin, where did that skin come from? The Christian tradition is that it came from an animal that was slain. And so part of the biblical context here of this idea of ritual cleanliness 
it's connected to blood. In fact, we read later on in the Torah in, in the Old Testament, the first five books, the Pentateuch, we read this in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So blood cleansing in the Bible is related to water cleansing. That's one of the significances, by the way, of water baptism in the church. So water cleansing is a ritual purification that, that is described in Scripture. And blood cleansing is also ritual purification. In fact, there's a, there's a word that's, that's used, baptism, where Moses dips a, kind of a, a brush or kind of a, a hair element thing in blood and he literally, it, the Bible says he baptizes the people. He sprinkles that blood on the congregation, the assembled people of God. And I'm trying to picture that myself, and I'm thinking, I didn't go to church to get you know, my shirt speckled with blood. But that's there. It's part of the cleansing. It's a ritual element in the Old Testament, this blood cleansing. And it isn't just sprinkling the people. People would bring animals, birds, and lambs and rams, and, and, the, and their throats would be cut. I know this is graphic. It's gross. And the blood literally, the Bible says again and again, is poured out on the altar. What kind of God needs blood? What does blood have to do with cleansing? Behind all of these ritual washings and water cleansings, and blood cleansings is this concept that human beings are sinful and God is not. That there's disorder between the Creator and the creation. And that disorder is broken. The, the relationship is broken and has created disorder. And something must be done. And all of our attempts, if you will, as human beings to correct the disorder have failed. And so God must do something. That's where blood comes in. Elsewhere in Leviticus, we read the explanation why blood must be shed for sins to be cleansed. We read, because the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. As a biology teacher, I've always struggled with that. Now, wait a minute. You know, we, 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 we've manufactured blood, right? We've genetically engineered artificial blood. We you can, you can even use saline as a temporary blood substitute. What do you mean the life is in the blood? Well, you know, a Hebrew view of the world isn't necessarily a 21st century Western American biology medical view of the world. The life is in the blood is, is a way of suggesting that, that when you die and your blood is spilt, the life is gone. And so somehow, in order to be cleansed, the story of Scripture is saying that something has to die. That our brokenness and the disorder in the world is so profound that only death can address it. And that God doesn't have to, to correct or rectify the relationship between fallen humanity and Himself. But if He chooses to, something or someone must die. And so as the story of Scripture develops, the ritual cleansing, both of water and of blood, culminates in the climactic event of Jesus dying on the cross. That this sacrifice, that this Son, 
that this human being, that this lamb, this priest, and all of the biblical imagery that goes with that can provide for the cleansing that would otherwise be impossible. He is the perfect priest. He offers himself on the altar. His blood is spilled before the presence of a holy God who is justly offended at our wrongdoing. And so the gospel then, which is my second point, this idea that that the simple gospel is the only distinction that God makes by simple faith, what we're saying in that is, is that we're saying that every other attempt to please God, including all of our goodness, so-called, must be laid aside. And we must look solely at the provision of a sacrifice who is God himself, Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh. So as I've been asked by more than one person over the years of being a pastor, being a teacher, being a a philosopher, a debater, and I wear all of these hats at different times, you know, why is there so much blood in the Bible? I usually say, that bothers me too. But taken on its own terms, the story of Scripture requires death. And it's either going to be my death, ultimately, or the death of a substitute. And that substitute is Jesus Christ. And so by faith in Jesus, we're saying that I can't fix what's broken in the world, but there is someone who can, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the distinction then that God makes is not based on who gets up earliest in the morning to say prayers at 5 and at 9 and at noon and at 3 and at 6 and at 9. It's not based on who wears certain clothes or, or who, who goes to a certain church, whether it's the, in the joke that I started with, this amillennial, postmillennial, prelapse, supralapsarian, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. It's about what will you do with Jesus? So coming back then to our passage, we see that what the, the scandal was is that unclean people, think of them as people from a different political party for the sake of discussion, were being brought into the church and they weren't being asked to change. They, they didn't have to wash up to come in. And so I'm moving now into that third point. What does this one distinction of faith have to do with the mission of the church? The church has gained a reputation of being an exclusive club with lots of requirements, most of them unwritten, except that one which we say is the only requirement, which is Jesus. And so as in any organization, there is the official policy manual, right? That would be this. And then there's the unofficial policy manual. It's like in a classroom, teachers have the rules, which they post neatly on the board because the school principal comes in and wants to pay. Okay, the the children know what's expected of them. Very good. Check off the box. And then there's the unofficial set of rules. How about in a relationship? There are the rules in your relationship. And then there are the unofficial rules, the unstated expectations, the one that both of you know, if you had the courage to say them out loud, are an absolute requirement for this thing to keep going, but neither of you want to admit to them. That's how the church is. We have an unstated set of expectations for people who, in a sense, would walk through our doors. As I 
as I was candidating for a particular job as an assistant pastor many years ago at a certain unnamed church in a certain unnamed location, I asked one of the leaders of the church who was on the leadership board, I said, can you please tell me why there are not any African Americans here? Because the church is situated in an African American neighborhood, which is to say sort of two blocks deep in every direction was African American, and this was a predominantly white church. I, I'm assuming what happened is, as happens in a lot of cities over time, the demographics of the city change, and where the church once was situated, the, the demographics over the years had changed, and that's what happened. I said, so why is everybody white? And the answer that I was given was, they calm, but they don't come back. So they, you know, what's the they? And whoever they are, why don't they come back? So one of my applications to the mission of the church relates specifically to racism. Racism is a stereotype that puts a certain person, typically of a certain skin color, in a certain box and says that what's true of one person is going to be true of everyone. Now, we're all racist in that sense. We all have expectations of people who look certain ways, and we do it all the time. In fact, to make stereotypes is a human impulse, and it's a useful impulse. It's part of how children learn to categorize the world, right? They make generalizations, and generalizations are not necessarily wrong. But they're wrong when the generalization begins to counteract or work against the image of God in a certain person. And what we have here in this text is very specifically a racist issue. The Jews, if you will, as a race, the Jewish Christians as a race, were, were offended that people of a different race were coming into their fellowship. People of mixed pedigree, if you will, were coming into their fellowship and what Peter is saying is, he says that God makes no such distinctions. That in fact, the only distinction that God makes is that he has cleansed their hearts by faith, which is, by the way, the same thing that he's done for us. And just to tie it all together, this word cleansed is in Greek that word for ritual purification. Peter is very specifically making a point He's saying ritually, religiously, in every sense that you would want them to be right before a holy God, He has done that. And by the way, He has done it. He has done it by His Holy Spirit. And so the subtext is, who are we to argue with God? So as I think about racism in the church, I think about our unstated expectations. And I think about our unstated beliefs, our closely held views that we're afraid to talk about in public. I believe that people that look like each other tend to do things together. I was uh, in Africa for about a month, and for most of that time, I was the only white person that I ever saw. And so when I did see a person who had skin that was mine, I didn't care if they spoke French or German or they were from Australia or South America or whatever, I felt drawn to them. It's like, somebody that's like me. 
So there's something that's normal about that and, and that's acceptable. But it's when we become complacent and our human tendencies become elevated to a, a, a first principle. Isn't that the problem? And it's when we make no efforts, if you will, to use spiritual truths and eternal principles to break down our human tendencies. And that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a, a, a community of people who are decidedly different than what we would find elsewhere. My friends, this is not the case. Speaking of stereotypes, it's a fair stereotype to expect people in the church who are part of the church not only to be the same as other people who are not a part of the church, but in some ways to be worse. And so the message of this text is there is one distinction. By the way, racism can also come in the form of classism. I've been told that it's much more difficult to get an African-American person who's wealthy and an African-American person who's poor to worship together than it is to get an African-American who is wealthy and a white person who's wealthy to worship together. Just to use two races and two classes, you could say the same thing of any other race or class. So that the biggest barrier really is not a barrier of race, but of class, that people of the same socioeconomic background gravitate to each other, no matter what their skin color. And so then the question becomes, okay, so Peter comes and he's saying not Gentiles, but poor people are receiving the Holy Spirit. Or rich people, can you imagine that? Rich people getting saved. And the church then is called to become a community of faith of all backgrounds. Whether all backgrounds are represented in each particular congregation is a whole other question. But are, is the mindset of, of people who claim the name of Jesus, who say that God has accepted me on this one distinction of faith, is the mindset of a believer in Jesus one that that is the only thing that matters? Do Christians carry that mindset into the workplace? Do they carry that mindset into their neighborhoods? Do they carry that mindset as they shop, as they play, wherever they, they go to, to spend their free time? I want to conclude with an illustration from a book that I'm reading. It's by C.S. Lewis. And the book is called Till We Have Faces. It's kind of an, an allegory. And in this allegory, there are two women, one who has a beautiful face and one who doesn't, one who has an ugly face. And the beautiful face, the woman is named Psyche. And Lewis writes this, Of Psyche's beauty at every age, the beauty proper to that age, there is only this to be said, that there were no two opinions about it, from man or woman, once she had been seen. It was beauty that did not astonish you till afterwards when you had gone out of sight of her and reflected on it. While she was with you, you were not astonished. It seemed the most natural thing in the world, as the fox delighted to say, she was according to nature. What every woman or even every thing ought to have been and meant to be, but had missed by some trip of chance. Indeed, when you looked at her, you believed for a moment that they had not missed it. She made beauty all around her. When she trod on the mud, the mud became beautiful. When she ran in the rain, the rain was silver. 
when she picked up a toad, she had the strangest and, I thought, unchanciest love for all manner of brutes. Even the toad became beautiful. In the church, I'm sad to say, and this is my concluding point, that Christians often go around not making things beautiful, but making them ugly. And our commission through the one distinction of gospel faith in Jesus Christ is to move into every aspect of our lives, bringing the very beauty of Christ to everything we touch, to everything we think about and say, and everything that we do. And the mission of the church is to take what is ugly and broken in the world only through Christ and by the power that he gives and to take those things and to begin the process of making them beautiful. It's a difficult task. It's much harder than any of us realize. But it is the calling. It is the mission of the church in the world. May God help us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your calling on each person to first to know you and then to love and follow you in your mission of bringing redemption. We can't save anyone. Our blood can't be shed to forgive anyone's sins. But in a small way, in a microscopic way, we can move into the various places of our lives where we live and work and play and bring the hope of salvation, the hope of redemption, the hope of justice, the hope of goodness and truth and beauty to the things that are not as they should be. Lord, forgive us as a church for not being that healing community, that that family of faith that we have been called to be for forgetting that one distinction through Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, help us to recommit ourselves to that mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.